0: Can you describe how safe it is for you and what what possible risks there are? Uh, Just one word. Artillery. Welcome to Journal Spotting. Are you trying to imagine what it might be like for medics, maybe such as yourself, on the front line of a war? Do you want to understand how you can help? Your ears are in the right place. This is a general medicine podcast that will bring you a monthly roundup of the top practice-changing articles, along with specialist interviews, guidelines, and more. We scour the journals so you don't have to. We are the Journal Spotters. Welcome back to Journal Spotting, listeners. This is the second of our War in Ukraine series, where we talk with doctors who are living and working in Ukraine during this devastating war. In the last episode, if you haven't listened to it already, we we spoke to the wonderful Professor Pudvalna and Dr. Semichotsky, who eloquently set the scene and described how the healthcare system is working out there. In this episode, we speak to a doctor on the front line, working in the closest available hospital from the battlefield. To protect his identity and also his family, we will call him by an alias, Taros and I will not be posting any pictures of him in the promotion. We discuss his role, the cases he sees, and the immense threat that he is under. He will tell you what it is like to be in his shoes, the shoes of a doctor, like me, you, or someone that you know. Some of what we discuss is incredibly hard to hear, but it is important to understand what it is like. At the end we discuss how you can help and where, if you would like to, you can give your money to have the greatest effect. I am sure you will find his story as powerful, moving and well, inspiring as I did and if so please let us know as if you would like more of these episodes we need your feedback so you can rate us, share us, follow us on twitter or email journalspotting at gmail.com now, let's get on with the conversation. Can you tell us a bit about your role before the 24th of February? What was your job? What did you do? And on a personal side, what did you like to do in your, in your free time? What made you happy?
1: Oh, I'm a medical doctor. I'm an anesthesiologist. I, I work in a pediatric hospital. I do mostly pediatric cases, but some of those are adult's. And I work in part time in a private practice as an anesthesiologist as well, and that's about it. And I'm a skier and some snowboarding <laughs> and uh, that kind of stuff.
0: Nice. Okay, so that's you like skiing and snowboarding. Yeah. Do you do you have a preference?
1: This year I switched back from snowboarding to skiing, and uh, it turned out to be. So cool to be able to use both legs as uh, indif- uh, independently. So I th- yeah. I hope to go back to skiing next year.
0: I had the same thing a few years ago. I'd always been a snowboarder. And then I thought, oh, you know I'm just gonna give skiing a go. I was really surprised about how much actually I enjoyed it. And I haven't looked back and I've carried on skiing from there. So there we go. And is there good skiing in Ukraine?
1: Oh yeah, there was a couple of places. I'll where Some of them can be quite, quite challenging.
0: Well, there we go. I didn't know that. That's great. Okay. So that was your role before. What is your role now?
1: Currently, I'm in active duty as an army anesthesiologist, and uh, at the moment, I'm uh, part of a small uh, what you would probably call a forward surgical team. So there's me uh, and uh, three surgeons based. In a tiny rural hospital not too far from the front line. So basically, we are the first hospital uh, where casualties arrive. And uh, our job is to provide what they call uh, uh, damage control surgery and damage control resuscitation and uh, send the patient to a big hospital, maybe an hour away, as soon as we can and in as stable condition as we can 24 7. That's what we do.
0: 24-7. Okay. So you, this hospital you're in now, is that a field hospital or is this a pre-existing hospital that was there before? No,
1: that's a tiny rural pre-existing hospital, Okay. which was actually supposed to be shut down. But now it's got uh, a new life because of the war.
0: And I know you, you spoke about this, don't want to give us exact details, but as far as where you are in Ukraine, are you central, east? It's south. South, okay. For, say, the doctors in the UK or wherever whoever's listening, the idea of suddenly being asked to be a military doctor would obviously come as quite a shock. Um, have you had any military training in the past, or is this the first time you've ever been in this sort of environment?
1: As a matter of fact, it's not that sudden because uh, the war has, with Russia has been going on for uh, eight years now. I'm not sure if this is common knowledge to the UK audience, but the war actually started in 2014 and it was quite hot then, then we had maybe seven uh, quiet uh, years, but by quiet I mean just one or two dead soldiers per day, that's what I mean by quiet, for eight Mm. years. So, uh, it's not that sudden to become a military doctor. Well, basically every uh, medical doctor training in Ukraine, uh, most of us, uh, including, uh, I mean, both men and women, automatically become officers in uh, military reserve. And we get our ranks, we become second lieutenants. So we are automatically in reserve. I was drafted for the first time uh, eight years ago in 2014 when the war broke out, that is when I spent my first year in the army, and now it's my second conscription.
0: Wow, okay, so this is your second time in this sort of environment, okay. And are you able to compare the two occasions, are they similar or are there big differences which you've noticed? Oh, they're
1: very different, because uh, the first time I was part of well, currently I'm in a hospital. But uh, the first time I was in the army, I joined a fighting uh, a fighting brigade. Oh, okay. So there was less of medical care and more of uh, combat casualty care.
0: That would have been a, yeah, a very different experience, I imagine.
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, actually I did manage. I managed to uh, perform one, one peripheral nerve block. In a year, and it was uh, it was actually in the field, almost uh, really? in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, but I yeah. did. It was way easier to do a block, a prosthesia based block, than to transport the casualty elsewhere. Yeah, and I didn't have too much equipment for anything else, but it worked just fine. We we made a selfie with the guy staring uh, in astonishment at his yeah. uh, numb arm and some oh uh, yeah. forceps in it. Yeah, that was fun. And, <laughs> Yeah, he enjoyed it too. And I was able, and I think there were three or more, two or three more cases when I did provide actual anesthesia yeah. and plenty of uh, casualty management.
0: Okay, thank you. So, when you found out that you're going to be conscripted this time, do you remember when that was and what was your reaction to that?
1: Um, uh, this. Uh, the Russian invasion started on the 24th of February and that is when uh, I was drafted by a text message on my phone. <laughs> that's how it works. And I uh, took a couple of days to send my family abroad and to get some matters sorted and then I joined the hospital.
0: And that's it. Gosh, so pretty, pretty immediate then. Okay. And do you mind if I ask about your family? Who Who's in your family who you, who you sent away?
1: I have a wife and uh, two daughters. They are three and 12
0: oh, years wow. old. And is that the last time you saw them?
1: On uh, on the 1st of March.
0: 1st of March. Wow. Very difficult, I imagine. Mm, yes, it is. Okay. So, obviously, you're on the front line, and I suppose we can imagine what sort of cases you're seeing but can you describe to our audience what sort of cases are you seeing, what sort of uh,
1: medical problems are you dealing with? Mm -hmm. Mostly it's (laughs) minor casualties luckily there's lots of them. Well most guys have uh, body armour and so my typical patient would have uh, a non-life threatening injury to their limbs and my job is limited to making sure they are not in shock, making sure they are not uh, in a life-threatening condition, uh, helping my surgeon if they need to do something urgently, and uh, ensuring some analgesia, and then sending the casualty elsewhere to a, more, uh, um, to a bigger hospital. Okay. But every now and then we have more uh, severe cases, with both civilians and uh, army personnel, both children and adults with things like uh, pneumothoraxis and mutilated limbs and massive hemorrhage and shock and uh, things like that. So that's when the damage control resuscitation comes Mm -hmm. on the stage.
0: Yeah, okay. And your prior experience, I'm sure, well, will lend itself to that. So I was going to ask about this, actually. So you see, you're seeing soldiers, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, You're seeing civilians as well. Um, are, Are they seen in the in the same way as the soldiers, um, or is it only if they're really sort of critically ill that they would come to you rather than going to another hospital?
1: I'm the first hospital. Uh, I'm the nearest hospital to the front line, and the front line, you know, it's not in the desert. Uh, there is villages and there are people there, and there are even, there are even children there. So uh, whoever gets injured, you know. Uh, those shells, they do not choose. So whoever uh, is injured or is, is brought to my hospital simply because I'm the uh, nearest, we are the nearest hospital to the battlefield. That's it. And uh, the care is essentially the same.
0: Yeah. No, sure. I got you. I, I was wondering, do you ever see any Russian soldiers? Do they, do they come your way as well? Or um, is that a totally separate path? Uh,
1: I haven't been. Lucky or unlucky yet, but my colleagues have been, so we do see some injured Russian soldiers every now and then. Not too often, though.
0: No. Do they receive the same care? Does a a Russian prisoner, a soldier, receive the same care as a Ukrainian um, national, or is it different? I literally have no idea how it works.
1: I wouldn't imagine how care could be different. Yeah, It's just same physiology and same bullets. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Maybe more security, but the same care.
0: Yeah, and they would go through the same process of coming to your hospital to another hospital rather than, um, yeah, and that would be that, I suppose. And when they were well enough, they would be a prisoner of war. Is that how it would
1: work? I think logistics would change uh, slightly because of the situation. When if mm. uh, the, uh, the person in question were in a critical condition obviously i would be the first doctor to see them mm. if it's a minor injury i think uh, they would find it safer and quicker to move them straight to a different hospital
0: yeah uh,
1: well but nobody needs uh, nobody needs a russian soldier to suffer so i think they would be treated uh, in the same way as a ukrainian soldier just with more security personnel around
0: yeah no, that's very understandable thank you I wanted our listeners to try and get, put themselves in, in your shoes um, and try to imagine what like, a day in your life would be. And obviously, you can go into huge amounts of detail, but uh, could you give us an overview of, say, what happens in a, in a fairly typical day for
1: you? Okay. Uh, today was a very typical day. After my breakfast, I spent two hours sorting out medications in a new ambulance I, I, I that arrived uh, and uh, teaching my guys my nurses to uh, just sorting things out to make sure everybody knows where things are uh, and to, to have everything ready in the afternoon after lunch I spent some time uh, working on the new uh, dry kits for a B and uh, resus uh, blood group determination which will make my life a lot easier because I won't have to use those uh, liquid uh, monoclonal antibodies for blood group identification and then uh, a casualty arrived it was a stable patient with uh, fractured tibia he sustained their injury because it was, uh, in a shelling in a village not far from here so I make, made sure he was stable, provided some analgesia, some morphine, and sent him, uh, and after some primary care, like immobilization, sent him to, uh, to a bigger hospital.
0: That's it. Okay. And then you want a podcast.
1: <laughs> yeah, which is not very typical. Well, another typical day would be same thing, but uh, maybe three days ago. Uh, basically, same routine, breakfast, lunch. And then, out of a sudden, we heard uh, sirens, sirens of an ambulance. And uh, they brought us two patients. Uh, One was a civilian lady in her 40s with some uh, non-life-threatening injury to the back. And the other one was a five-year-old girl with uh, an, an almost mutilated lower leg and in shock they had sustained their injury nearly three hours before that so it took a, took a while to bring them bring them here and finish took them uh, to the operating room and performed some surgery and some uh, damage control resuscitation that's it
0: okay so quite varied and As you say, a whole whole range of soldiers, civilians, children and a whole range of trauma mainly I guess. If somebody is medically unwell, if they've got sepsis for some reason, that sort of thing, would that come via you as well, your your hospital? Or would that go sort of further afield?
1: No, I had a stroke, a suspected stroke yesterday. It was a soldier. A soldier in his fifties, and I had a suspected angina attack. In, uh, in quite a young soldier uh, three days ago.
0: Okay, so a real range of things you're seeing, that's really interesting. Does your hospital, does it have enough resources? Um, from what you've described, it sounds like it, it probably does.
1: At the moment, I have everything I need for even quite complex cases. We are kind of slightly short of staff because uh, a significant proportion of ma- of civilian medical personnel uh, chose to leave the area because the area is definitely unsafe. Uh, but basically we have all the equipment we need and all the supplies we need and it's coming. For example, uh, the day after tomorrow, I'm expecting a patient warming device, which had not been here. And... Uh, video laryngoscope which i asked somebody to send me just in case and well basically uh, um, by that you can judge how well equipped i am the basic things like patient monitoring and mechanical ventilation and oxygen and uh whatever it's all here
0: okay good and do you know where is it, where it's coming from is that coming from you know a central ukrainian source or is it um or is this being supplied by charities Um, do you have an idea about that
1: i do a lot has come from uh, the government Mm -hmm. and a lot has come and is coming from charities Uh, it's very easy Uh, if i need something from the government i make a call some paperwork and it arrives but not on the maybe not the next day maybe it might take a week or two or three Uh, so we need to plan ahead which is which is okay, okay. and if yeah. it's something that I don't expect the government to buy, I make a phone call or two, and it's and the device in question is usually on its way from a charity. Wow! Yeah, some time ago I ordered, uh, I requested a charity to send me an infusion pump. I needed one more to make sure both my operating rooms are equipped in a proper fashion, so I did that. Same with a patient monitor. Why I, I there is enough monitoring equipment, but I wanted one more device, so I, I asked a charity to bring that, and it took no time at all.
0: Brilliant. Okay. Yeah, it's been one of the fantastic things, we, which we've seen is just the support for Ukraine from you know, from our country, from other countries, and the involvement of charities trying their best to you know to bring the aid which is needed. You mentioned about. Being safe and lots of medical personnel leaving because they don't feel safe. Um, can you describe how safe it is for you and what what possible risks there are?
1: Uh, just one word: artillery. Yeah. We are within ranges because modern artillery is uh, the. the we are within, well within the range of long-range and artillery and medium-range artillery. And uh, a lot really depends on how well our guys in the field are doing, and how well they are equipped, and how well their reconnaissance works. And that's it. Artillery.
0: Yeah. As far as the artillery, has there been any sort of shelling or bombing around near your, very near your area? Has it come close?
1: Just once. 2 kilometers away
0: yeah okay and we've heard in the news um about the shelling of hospitals schools these sorts of things um how possibly as you know likely on purpose by the russians as far as a, a tactic how does that make you feel how is that how is that impacting on you that idea of being within range and possibly being in an unsafe area
1: okay I will answer that Uh, okay Uh, it would be a shame and it would be a very betraying thing thing, uh, not to ever come back to my children
0: yeah
1: that's my feeling was that clear? Clear? I mean, uh, yeah. yeah,
0: yeah, no, no, that 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 speaks volumes, doesn't it? Absolutely, and um, I can I can understand it. Yeah, not sort of talking in detail about it, but I do understand. Yeah, absolutely. How are you and your colleagues coping? Do you, uh, as in, and this is coming from someone who has no military background, and so most of our listeners won't have trying to understand how, um, you know, doctors, somebody in your situation, how do, you, how do you cope? Do you have, do you rely on your, your comrades, your colleagues? Is that sort of, you know, an important mechanism? Do you have any other mechanisms of, of coping with that threat?
1: Well, basically, there is uh, no way of coping with the threat. I totally depend on how well the Ukrainian armed forces are doing their job. Basically, I'm not an, uh, in, in the offensive part. I'm just, uh, in military terms, I'm only... We are a, a target. So we are uh, really dependent on how well uh, the army is able to protect targets like me.
0: Yeah. Do you, do you meet many civilians? Are there many civilians still... Around your area, and what is the what is the impact on your the average person, average Ukrainian who who lived in that area?
1: It is devastating. <laughs> uh, uh, there are there are some there are two anesthesiologists in this hospital, and one of them actually lives in the hospital because the village. Where he permanently lives is not a safe place anymore, so he chose to stay in the hospital for, I don't know, for uh, until the war ends. And his dog is around, too. Okay, yeah. So, many homes are non-existent anymore. Many homes are either destroyed or, well, a swathe of territory is occupied by the Russians, and there is... And getting out of there is uh, something that most people cannot do. And uh, obtaining medical care in that part of the country, and that is not too far away, is uh, nearly impossible. And uh, that's it.
0: Yeah, so people are going to be suffering hugely. In England, we've heard many really awful stories um, relating to what civilians have gone through I mean, whether it being stuck underground um, in the steelworks, Mariupol or um, all the events which are unfolding about what happens in um, Butcher, Butcher. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you have you witnessed, have you have you seen people firsthand who have been through these sorts of experiences?
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, I will tell you a story. Uh, story of 14 civilians who tried to. Uh, in broad, light, in broad daylight, they tried to uh, cross a river to travel from the occupied part of the country to the uh, part of the country controlled by Ukraine. And it was in broad, in broad daylight, so it was quite apparent that they were civilians, some of them children, I believe there were four or five children, and uh, the Russians shelled their boat Uh, when it was already on the Ukrainian shore. So uh, the first patient who came my way was a five-year-old boy. He was was okay. He had just a wound on his buttock. So he was screaming in Russian. He was screaming in Russian. uh, The bandits have been shelling us. That's what he said. Mm. And uh, the second patient uh, from the same uh, that boat was a uh, fourteen-year-old uh, with an uh, with an injury to the head, totally incompatible with life. Uh, massive hemorrhage and fragments of uh, brain all over the clothes. All I, all I was able to do was to intubate and to, uh, and then I realized it was uh, non compatible with life mm-hmm. oh, the boy had a tiny amount of money in his sock because the family apparently realized it was a life-threatening venture venture so parents hid some money in his sock to make sure well they realized they wouldn't they might not make it to the end of the journey and most of them didn't for example, uh, the five-year-old who was screaming about the bandits uh, had just lost his mother in this in this ordeal.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, it sounds beyond, you know, anything which anybody in England—well, not say anybody, but the vast, vast majority of people in England could imagine—and um, in the
1: last seventy years. Yeah. No more. Just seventy years. When was the last thing like that? When did it happen in England last time? Seven years ago? Am I counting right? Yeah, seven. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much like that. Absolutely. Not too long. There are people who still remember that on there.
0: No, that's very true. That is very true. Um, but yeah, yes, for so many generations, it's uh, not something we can remember. Hmm. Okay. So we have a good idea of how. How it's been horrendous for the civilians for the soldiers how incredibly difficult it must be for for you and your colleagues and your family what are your thoughts about the future what do you what do you feel about the future for for yourself and for
1: ukraine with myself it's uh, very simple as an officer i could Die in the line of duty every day, like tonight, tomorrow, anytime. Yeah, and the Ukraine. Well, the prospect is way better than I would imagine eight weeks ago, and and that's what. Well, um, I was very bad at forecasting things. Uh, on the day before the war, I was mm-hmm. perfectly sure. I mean, on the twenty third of February, before the major invasion started. I was pretty sure it would not happen, so I uh, do not like to make any forecasts at the moment.
0: But you said you're, you're, you're feeling more optimistic than you were
1: eight weeks definitely, ago. Definitely.
0: And what has made that change in particular? Are there any um, particular events which mean you are more optimistic?
1: My army is doing well.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: My, my army is fighting well, and my army has uh, probably has the support it needs. I'm not sure if it is enough or if it is more than enough. I don't know, but there is definitely support because without international support, we would be we wouldn't be where we are now. And my army is fighting much better than anyone in the world had expected, and that includes me.
0: Yeah, yeah, uh, I think yeah, we can echo that in the UK as well. I think Ukraine are doing a, a, a... Phenomenal, phenomenal, incredibly brave job and I haven't met anybody who isn't in full support of you and all everything that you, your army, your medics, everybody are doing. Um do you have any as far as from the in the UK, people always ask, well, how can I help? What can I do? Do you have any any words for them or any advice about how they they can help or where they should put their support or their money or anything like that?
1: Uh, in fact, I do. We do depend on charity in, on, on the large scale. War, no war can be fought without my and we need resources. Uh, one of the official channels is called United24. If you Google United24, 24, United24, 24, uh, you'll learn it's the initiative uh, by the president of Ukraine. And it is the main venue for collecting charitable donations in support of Ukraine. Uh, Now, if uh, anybody chooses to make a donation, there is a choice. You can donate to defense and demining or to medical aid or to rebuild Ukraine in the future. And there is a couple of words I need to say. Well, I'm a person, I, uh, I have never... I have just once in my lifetime punched a person in the face. It was when I was uh, 10 years old. So I'm (laughs) a peaceful person, indeed. Uh, I don't know how to do it. I I, I don't know how to punch anyone in the face. Uh, I'm a peaceful person, and nevertheless, I humbly suggest that if anyone chooses to make a donation, you pick the defense and demining option. Not medical aid, and not rebuilding Ukraine. Uh, Because defense and demining is something that really saves lives Uh, a single night vision device or a single reconnaissance drone can save more lives overnight than most doctors save in their lifetime whether i and my fellows survive till dawn directly depends on how well my fellow soldiers in the field are equipped and if, if there is a casualty I do have everything I need to provide appropriate care, but my medical supplies are of no use at all if my hospital is destroyed by artillery. Because today the Russians had better reconnaissance than we do. So the tool of peace tonight, uh, today, uh, is uh, weapons, and is that is why I really urge anyone considering a donation to donate to defense and the,
0: the, the mining thank you Taras many people listening would have most of them being healthcare care based and doctors if they were thinking about putting money places they would have firstly opted for medical care and that's but i think you made it make a very powerful argument for um where to put the money and why so thank you so much for doing that, that i'm sure that will um open the eyes of many many of our listeners so that's really useful hardest we've, we've spoken about a lot, um, and I really want to thank you for that, and thank you for being so open, because I know, of course, it's difficult.
1: Well, basically, sharing things is my way of coping. Honestly, I I've told this story about the uh, the boat so many times; uh, it doesn't hurt anymore. You know, although you know, uh, really, I'm an, uh, I'm thirty thirty uh, that means I started working in the ICU sixteen years now more. I started working in the ICU in uh, two thousand and five. So I, by by this time I'm supposed to be uh, burnt out, and that's what I thought I am until that kid came crying, uh, sh- shouting about the bandits shooting their boat. So uh, it was actually me carrying him to the from the ambulance to the. Uh, to the emergency room, and that's when I suddenly realized I'm not as, as burnt out as I had thought. So, yeah,
0: there's still life to you yet, is there? <laughs> yeah, do you have any final words you'd like to, to leave for our listeners? Or
1: not really, see you in London after the victory.
0: Sounds good, come to London and we'll come and say hi. That sounds amazing. Thank you again, and uh, good luck with everything. You're doing a phenomenal job, and we will continue to support
1: you however however we can. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great evening.
0: I found my conversation with Thales interesting, sure, and moving. But I think for me what most struck a chord was a reminder, once again, of how the lives of normal people, including normal, peaceful doctors, are being torn apart in the most devastating manner. For me, it's important to try and understand this, to try and put myself in their shoes, uh, as, as a greater understanding leads to greater empathy, more support, and a greater impetus to help and do rather than sit back and hope it goes away. Well, I hope you feel that way too. And I sincerely hope Tardis gets back to his wife and daughters soon you have been listening to Journal Spotting with your host Dr Barnaby Hirons and special guest Dr Tardis all links from the show can be found in the show notes please get in touch with your thoughts and if you want more of these episodes via our website journalspotting.com on twitter at journalspotting facebook or instagram special thanks to St George's Healthcare and HEE for their generous grant which keeps these podcasts going